1: Make sure that you get your hands on Midwife Pip's Guide to a Positive Birth Book now and are empowered to have the birth experience that you deserve. Hello and welcome to the Pregnancy Wellness Podcast, hosted by me, Pip a practicing midwife who is on a mission to provide you with real evidence-based information about pregnancy, birth and the postpartum. Each episode, I'll be joined by special guests and leading experts to equip you with all the information you need for an empowered journey from conception right through to motherhood. So, with no further ado, Let's make a cuppa and get started with today's episode. Food can trigger such a huge spectrum of emotions, from positive to controlling and incredibly negative, and can ultimately lead to damage of physical as well as psychological health. Eating disorders are a complex mental health illness, and so many men and women are living with distorted perceptions of their body image and around the consumption of food. On this episode, I am pleased to be joined by an expert in this area, consultant dietitian Neve Hannan, who has a range of experience in clinical nutrition and nutrition communication. She is passionate about communicating evidence-based nutrition messages which promote overall health, including a healthy relationship with food. Meeb is the founder of Dietet- Dietetically Speaking, which promotes evidence-based nutrition messages online and on social media. She currently works with private clients, companies, and brands in the media. She's also an author and recently released her first book, Your No-Nonsense Guide to Eating Well, which is available on Amazon and in a variety of ebook formats. Please note this is an emotive subject that could be triggering to some people so we'd advise listening to this episode in a safe space with space with support available and if you are affected by any of today's episodes and feel you need some support the link to Beat an eating disorder charity can be found in the description below. So Meve welcome and thank you so much for coming on the podcast today I'm really excited to have you on. Well thank you so much for having me on. I'm delighted to be here so I'm just interested you obviously have your your history in um dietetics and I just wonder what kind of got you interested I suppose in kind of disordered eating and relationships with food
0: yeah so it's something that when I was first deciding like what career route would I go down I was really drawn to psychology and also nutrition and decided to go down the nutrition route which I absolutely love but as I've been gaining more experience and working with different clients, it's something that really comes up again and again is a negative relationship with food and just the whole psychological aspect of eating because it's so closely linked. Um, And it's something that I've just always been really interested in. I found it really rewarding to work with people in that area. And, you know, there's such a high proportion of people that have had some sort of issue with a disordered relationship with food. You know, luckily for most people, that's not a clinical eating disorder. Um, but you know on that sort of spectrum of the relationship with food you know a lot of us have at some stage you know maybe been in a more negative place with that or maybe seen food in a little bit more of a kind of black and white way and it's kind of when I got into blogging and being on social media and debunking fad diets and that kind of thing it was almost like the next logical step was um, the kind of the myths that we get around food being so good and bad or black and white and all these just really unhelpful messages that we get about nutrition and um, so that's really where my interest stems from. Yeah really interesting that you mentioned
1: social media there because it's definitely been an influence hasn't it and I think when we think about kind of relationships with food and those kind of maybe slightly more unhealthy angles and um, the media has undoubtedly played a massive role in the perception we have and I loved you did a um, amazing post on fad diets and your like formula for fad diets would you mind just explaining that because I thought it just summarized
0: it amazingly because fad diets are everywhere aren't they yeah they are absolutely thank you (laughs) Uh, so basically yeah I have a YouTube video that goes through this uh, and it's basically. A lot of the key elements of a fad diet that you see, and I sort of put it together into a formula, and I hope I can remember it now. Um, <laughs> but it's basically you take like an exaggerated claim and then you minus the evidence and you multiply it by celebrity endorsement, um, And basically what you're left with is just absolute nonsense. Um, because, you know, they were some of the key elements I was seeing that they're not evidence-based. You know, there's big names or the celebrities behind some of these diets. And, you know, a lot of people are drawn to that um and also just the the unrealistic claims you know most of us will be drawn to oh this food is gonna you know make you live longer make you more beautiful you know all these things um, so you can totally see why people are drawn to that but it's really it's you know it's smoke and mirrors it's just not a sustainable approach and really a lot of those fatty diets aren't just a waste of time and money but they can be harmful especially in the long run yeah, that's a
1: really good point, isn't it? That actually there can be damages to health, and that's what makes it such an irresponsible thing, I suppose, when these are kind of protruded all over social media. Yeah. So I know we, we kind of discussed in terms of um, disordered eating and relationships with food, there is that massive spectrum, and people probably commonly hear of eating disorders and some of the disorders they might be more common with, but could you just kind of describe that
0: spectrum and actually how widespread that could be? Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Um, So some of the main categories of eating disorders that we have, um, so these would be specifically defined in the DSM manual. Um, Basically, it would range from things like anorexia nervosa. and So that's a really restrictive type eating disorder. Um, And there's a lot of kind of common traits between different types of eating disorders, but anorexia would be really um, Characterized by being very restrictive, often a low body weight, not always, uh, body dysmorphia. Um, and it's actually the mental health illness that has um, the highest risk of death. Um, so, really serious, can be really extreme. And that's where, you know, if you see people who are you know, really malnourished and really unwell with their eating disorder, um, that will be a common feature of anorexia on the severe end of the scale in terms of anorexia. Um, then we have bulimia nervosa, and that is characterized by purging. Um, so it is d- different forms of purging. So it could be vomiting, it can be use of laxatives, it can be over-exercise. So it's basically these unhealthy compensatory behaviors to um, basically get rid of food, kind of use up calories. Um, so laxatives would be another form of purging um we have binge eating disorder so that is where somebody eats a an unusually large amount of food usually in a short period of time and it's usually quite uncontrolled um and you know that there's basically this cycle of binging that can happen where it can be related to restriction and feelings of guilt and shame around food which can then feed back into that cycle um you then can get um, ARFID. So that is um, a more newly defined type of eating disorder and it's avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. Um, And it's where somebody eats just a very small range of foods and it's associated with autism in some cases, um, or it's where there's just quite strong food fears and it's not actually driven by body image issues. Um, It's more of kind of a fear of the food itself. And then you have this category of the unspecified type eating disorders um, and actually about you know more than 50 percent of eating disorders would fall into that category because most people don't just kind of slot nicely into a specific diagnosis um so it might be that somebody has most of the characteristics of binge eating disorder but doesn't quite meet like the frequency of how often you'd be binging to meet that diagnosis uh, or there could be overlap where somebody um basically has elements of, you know, different types of eating disorders. Um, And then, so so that's kind of the the clinical eating disorders themselves. And then for each one of those, really, there is its own spectrum in terms of how severe, or it could be subclinical. So maybe subclinical binge eating disorder, as I said, where somebody um, has some of the characteristics, but doesn't binge, say, once a week, or maybe they used to, and as part of their recovery, it's becoming less frequent. Um, So... And then, so we have that kind of the clinical eating disorder, we have the subclinical, and then we have the kind of disordered, kind of unhealthy relationship with food. And then we have, I'm not really sure what the best term is for it because, you know, normal, there's no, everyone's normal is slightly different. It's not just one thing, but I guess it's a more kind of freer, flexible relationship with food. Um, So that would be how I would describe that sort of spectrum.
1: Amazing. Thank you so much. And it's really interesting because some of the things that you were discussing there, especially the kind of links with autism, um, that, that makes perfect sense. And I've never heard of that before. So thank you for clarifying. That's amazing. And so we, when we think about, I guess, um, we've got kind of the, the eating disorders that are maybe slightly more categorised, and then just mm-hmm. this general relationship with food that sometimes can be detrimental and, and playing into things like fad diets and the obsession with body image and body dysmorphia. I'm assuming that that's kind of something that could be really underreported because of the kind of mainstreamness of it, if you like. Is that what you kind of find in your
0: practice? Yeah, definitely. And I guess even when we look at the statistics themselves, you know, they're really based on the clinical eating disorders. Um, so, about 1.25 million people in the UK having an eating disorder but we, you know, we don't have such specific numbers in terms of disordered eating or an unhealthy relationship with food. Um, but, you know, we do see that even like the clinical eating disorders themselves are becoming more common in terms of, you know, about, there's been like about a third of an increase in diagnosis and that might be related to improved diagnosis. Um, but also, you know, we do see that sort of rise in those statistics. Yeah, but absolutely there's, quite a few people that either kind of fall through the net even if they have asked for support but with these kind of illnesses it's quite common for people not to seek support to feel quite guilty or shameful or to fe- almost feel like it's normal you know how normalized it is in our society to feel like you have to constantly be on a diet or how negatively so many people talk about their bodies and other people's bodies um so for some people especially if it's on the less extreme end of the scale they may not feel like there's actually much of an issue there but if it's having a negative impact on your life, if it's overwhelming, if it's taking over like mental headspace from other parts of your life, then it really is a problem. And I really encourage people to seek support. Yeah, that's really important. And it's scary, isn't it? To think how, how normal,
1: like you say, it's become like to hear someone's on a diet, you you don't even think twice do you nowadays like that just seems to be everywhere diets and try this and try that and you do such an amazing job through your social media and through your blogging in kind of dispelling myths about food because the media really has done us a huge injustice over the years hasn't it and we're kind of I guess only really scratching the tip of the iceberg and trying to start dispelling some of these things and, and I wonder whether you could just kind of I suppose allude to some of these massive myths so I don't think there's been a food group really that's not been caught up in it has there in terms of our macronutrients and even individual foods like eggs and eggs and red meat um, so i just wonder yes. if you could dispel some of the myths maybe around the aspect of fats in our diet because i know that's a massive one that that mm-hmm. has caused huge amount of confusion
0: yes good question um yeah you're so right it's a full-time job basically trying to keep up with all the myths and the fads yes. that are out there about food and <laughs> yeah media social media there's just so many confusing messages um, so you're asking specifically about fats and the role that they play in our diet? Yeah, I just wonder, because I know that's something that people
1: are um, maybe slightly anxious about including in their diet, and the media has just caused this explosion of confusion that I think probably a lot of people don't really know what the the right
0: thing, if you like, is to do around it yes. consuming them. No, absolutely, because you're right, there was a lot of stigmatization of fats especially kind of around the 80s when all these low-fat diets are becoming quite popular or actually you know promoted by um, some governments and things as well um, and we do have more evidence coming through more specifically about different types of fats and the role that they play in our health but in general you know we absolutely need fats you know fats do play an important role in our body and um, we need fats to absorb certain vitamins like our fat soluble vitamins vitamin a d e and k um, and within our body, fats play an important role in hormone production, in insulation of our body, in terms of you know heart health and brain health and everything. And that's where we kind of come to the specific types of fats. So particularly in terms of brain health and heart health, our omega threes are really important, and that's the type of fat that we mainly get from oily fish. Uh, we get a, a precursor form in some plant based foods, so like in flax seeds and rapeseed oil, and um, that. Part of that can become converted into the active form of omega 3, but the type in oily fish is already active and ready to go. Um, So that's a really beneficial one. And then, our other types of, you know, I guess what we would often call the kind of, you know, healthy fats um, that just have a lot of evidence behind their health promoting impacts would be like olive oil. So there's so much evidence that olive oil is really, really good for us. Um, it's you know full of vitamins and antioxidants, polyphenols, um, and the fats in there are mainly unsaturated fats, and so monounsaturated fats in particular. And so, so there's two ways of looking at food. You can sort of break it down into all those constituents, or you can look at the effect that the whole food has and look at the effects in terms of populations. And when we look at the effect of the whole food, it's more it's more representative really because we don't you know break up our foods into individual nutrients and like have a plate of omega-3s you know we would have like potatoes and veg and oily fish um so when we look at olive oil itself and the role that it's played in the mediterranean diet in particular um you know it seems to have a really protective effect in terms of the risk of heart disease and stroke and um you know just play a really important role so that's a really healthy one and um other ones would be like nuts and seeds and avocado and hummus um so they you know they're ones that would be higher in those unsaturated fats that i mentioned um but you know other sources of fats would be things like butter coconut oil pastries those kind of foods and you know we can absolutely have those foods in our diet we often get the message that you know we have to almost avoid sugar and saturated fat. And that's not the case at all. You know, a lot of people on a population level may benefit from having them in slightly smaller amounts. But it really depends on the individual because a lot of the clients that I would work with who would have issues with disordered eating or uh, actual eating disorders, then it may be the exact opposite for them. And they may actually need to work on reintroducing those foods if they've completely cut them out because nothing needs to be off limits unless you're allergic to it. And as I said, fats themselves do play an important role in our body that's a really great point actually i love that you say that actually we shouldn't be cutting anything out because that's where i
1: think a lot of a lot of again we allude to the media and and kind of restrictive eating is cutting out major food groups and i think that's probably something that a lot of lots of the general population even if they haven't got any kind of disordered eating that's been diagnosed probably struggle with and i think probably most women and men have experimented with these kind of fatty diets where they are cutting out or restricting major food groups so that's a really good point in that actually we should be able to openly consume everything some things in different Mm -hmm. proportions to others but actually having that freedom to enjoy all types of food for sure Yeah, i think
0: that is just such an important message and especially because as you're saying there's it changes over the years you know which foods are stigmatized and things but i guess at the moment there's a lot of focus on plant-based eating and although there's lots of benefits in terms of eating plants a plant-based diet doesn't need to be plant-only, and there's lots of benefits to animal-based foods. Although we just need them in slightly smaller amounts than the plant-based foods. Um, but you know, when you are in an environment where people are, you know, sometimes shaming you for your food choice, um, then it can become really difficult. Or even when I work with um, teenagers and young people, and you know, their friends are experimenting with you know going vegan and giving up foods, and At that age group, it can be a higher risk of developing an eating disorder. And just restricting foods, taking out food groups for some people can cause problems. So it just is important to bear in mind. Yeah, definitely. And so when we talk about, I guess, cutting out food groups and restricting food,
1: are there any kind of key signs and symptoms that we can look out for, either for individuals or people that you maybe um, are, are close with, in terms of detecting maybe some sort of issues with food that might be emerging? Yeah. Good
0: question. So, uh, one would be, so what's the level of restriction? So is it that they are, you know, trying to eat slightly smaller portions or, um, you know, trying to experiment with having like fruit for dessert sometimes instead of chocolate, you know, if they're doing it in quite like a moderation way, but it's not off limits, um, then that would be kind of a healthier approach. If it seems to be very black and white, like I can never eat this food or they seem quite. you know, maybe anxious and stressed even at the thought of it or in social situations if it you know if it becomes really difficult to find somewhere to eat out and that kind of thing um that can be a sign um another thing to think about is what's the motivation behind it so i guess i was talking about plant-based diets there so if it is um say somebody's gone vegan and their motivation seems to be mainly around food and they're talking about food and like Saying that there's less calories in these plant-based foods and that kind of thing, then that would be more of an alarm bell rather than if it was to be um, motivated by animal welfare or the environment, um, because well, partly because it's from a nutrition point of view, you you don't need to cut out any foods, as I was saying, um, and if nutrition is the main motivator, then it can just be a way of restricting calories, basically, um, and that's where. You know you need to be a little bit more cautious um so they'd be some of the things to think about, so kind of what's the reason behind it and kind of how extreme is it, and is it interfering with social interactions? is it kind of causing isolation? yeah, that's a really good point. And I suppose that kind of in that food becomes a focus of oh
1: everything and is kind of all consuming um is yeah. where it can I suppose start to become slightly dangerous um, for individuals mm-hmm. and then When we think, I guess, about the general population, are there any people who are perhaps maybe more at risk of developing some disordered eating or or a diagnosed eating disorder over others?
0: Yeah, there are. Um, So as I mentioned, teenagers and young people are often at a higher risk, um, partially related to the, the pressures and all the media and social media messages that we discussed. Um, and also, you know, parts of their brain just aren't fully formed in terms of, you know, logic and making rational decisions. So, so they can be at a higher risk. Um, it's interesting because we're still finding out, you know, some of the causes and the reasons behind eating disorders. Um, but we know that it's a combination, really, of biological factors and environmental factors. So, you know, partially genetics, and then also. Environmental factors like is there somebody else that in the house that's been dieting and you know that's been kind of a triggering event for somebody, um, or yeah, all these images in the media or on social media, or um, an episode of trauma, for example, um these types of things in somebody who's already kind of genetically predisposed that combination of the two seems to increase the risk of an eating disorder. So, other things to think about is you know, if it's in the family, then it can sometimes be more likely and kind of for a combination of genetic and environmental reasons because if it's again in the family somebody may have just kind of grown up seeing that or being exposed to it or again it could just be in the genes and um, so it's not to say that it's anybody's fault um, it's not it's just it's quite a complex picture in terms of what the causes are um, mental health issues as well are quite closely linked so um, issues with depression anxiety alcohol drug abuse um being very preoccupied in terms of body image so body image issues um people who are also uh, have more perfectionist tendencies and quite kind of high achievers um because that can go down the kind of the rigid thinking less flexible sort of route which can then be translated into food and as i said you know trauma itself are just quite triggering events and those events can be really different for different people um but you know, sometimes it's cases of physical, emotional or sexual abuse. Um, it can be a bereavement. It can be being bullied. Um, it can be being under like a lot of pressure. Um, or for some people, times like significant times in their life, like somebody trying to lose weight for a wedding or um, some people find actually, even if they've been recovered, that during pregnancy can be quite a triggering time as well, or even postpartum, so after having the baby. And. Um, So, yeah, so it's, it's, there's quite a few different things that can impact it. And as I said, it's generally that combination of genetic and some other kind of lifestyle factors. It's such a complex picture, isn't it? So, and so
1: I guess so individual as well to each person yeah absolutely so when we talk about sort of I guess younger people being slightly more at increased risk of developing disordered eating habits um, and that kind of environmental influence especially in the home environment is there kind of any things we can do in our family homes to try and reduce the risk of kind of unhealthy relationships with food and eating
0: yeah really good question and I should say as well that even though These are some of the people that are more likely to be at risk, and eating disorder can impact anyone of any age, of any race. Um, So, we often, you know, I think I did mention myself, young women, um, you know, it's not to say that nobody else can develop an eating disorder, and we are seeing higher rates um, in men in particular and in boys. Um, So, yeah, so in terms of the home environment, it's really important just to try and normalize eating as much as possible um, and keeping it as a a positive time. So basically, um, not talking about calories, not talking about diets, cutting out foods, not kind of shaming anyone for what they're eating or commenting on what they're eating too much. Um, and the same goes for body image. So, not talking about your own body or other people's body in a negative way. Um, and it's really it's that modeling behavior so the parents are modeling the behavior of you know eating all different kinds of foods so you know not banning any foods from the house or anything like that or um not putting any foods on a pedestal either so trying to be quite neutral with language so just call food by the name of that food so not calling it a treat or naughty or a cheat day or any of that stuff we just want to call it like a biscuit or a packet of crisps or whatever it is um and if if that's the home environment then um it can just be a lot less triggering and a more helpful situation yeah that's a great tip actually because
1: they're some of the words that you use there we hear all the time don't we and absolutely i've said them myself you know this is a treat or or Mm -hmm. i've been a bit naughty because i've eaten this chocolate and and we really need to try and disconnect those kind of emotive words don't we with food
0: it's true. And it's hard. I feel like treat in particular um, is a really hard one to break. If you've been, you know, brought up using that word, I have to stop myself all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And even when we, when we mm-hmm. speak about like our animals, you know, we give them
1: food as a treat, it kind of uh-huh. radiates all through our lives, doesn't it? For sure. But our, la- our language of food is is so important, as you say, and that, that having that variety. And we spoke about a little bit about calorie counting, which I think is another massive issue. And I think probably most people if, if they haven't calorie counted to some extent themselves will know people that are rigidly calorie counting for whatever particular reason. And I wonder whether maybe for some individuals having, I guess, more of an awareness of calories without necessarily doing rigid, mm-hmm. rigid maths and adding it up and knowing exactly the ins and outs. Is that necessarily such a bad thing to some extent?
0: Yeah. So when it comes to nutrition, like there really aren't any black and whites where this is always good and this is always bad, unless obviously you're allergic to something or it's poisonous. Um, but otherwise, you know, there are some people that are able to calorie count or have that calorie awareness and it's absolutely fine for them, or it's even helpful for them. Um, but on a kind of a larger scale so it's quite relevant at the moment because with the new obesity strategy you know this talk of putting calories on all menus and you know being very visible in lots of places um i would argue that's not the best approach i think it's good to have the information available for people who want to go and look for it but we do also have these vulnerable people to think about that means that you know it's going to make just going to a restaurant or something that was already going to be a really triggering event even more difficult um but yeah, I mean, there is there is a more kind of a moderation approach, as you're saying. So I, I mean, for some people, though, any type of calorie counting focusing on numbers is going to be triggering, and you really need to step away from it. So if anybody has a history of an eating disorder or feels like they may be predisposed to that, then you're really best to stay away from the numbers, really try and disconnect from calorie counting, because it's not even that accurate. So two people could eat the same amount of calories and they would actually digest different amounts depending on their hormones, depending on what's going on with them that day. Um, And also, I mean, the estimates on the packet, you know, they are estimates. And the same with when you... If you calculate your calorie requirements or you know if i calculate calorie requirements for a client it's always an estimate it's never like an exact science unless you're doing specific tests in a lab you know that's the only way you're going to get a more accurate estimation of calorie requirements and um, so yeah so it's really variable so that's what i always say is you should always take it with a pinch of salt and with anything you need to have some flexibility from it so if it becomes a thing that calorie counting is something that you need to do every day you feel really worried if you don't do it it means it's kind of going back to we're saying you know interfering with socializing and that kind of thing if it's like um oh you know I don't know if you went on holidays or something back in the day when we used to go on holidays um (laughs) you, you know if if you couldn't get the app to work in that country or something like it'd be really stressful it'd be really difficult if you're getting those kind of signs then it's okay this may be unhealthy this may be a bit obsessive Um, and some people use it just to begin with to get an an idea of the calories in food or an idea of what they need but then gradually move away from that and try and become a little bit more intuitive or a little bit more flexible with it so yeah so for some people it can be okay um but for anyone who is predisposed to disordered eating um definitely not
1: yeah that's really great advice actually because there's apps everywhere isn't there about kind of calorie counting and, and having that yeah that awareness that actually is this going to become something that becomes actually quite obsessive and unhealthy um, and reduces your flexibility, then we need to be just curbing that straight away.
0: Definitely. Definitely. And I mean, there's such a a fine line between kind of healthy and obsessive because, you know, you start off just being kind of conscientious and thinking, okay, I'm just going to eat well and I'm going to, you know, do some activity and blah, blah, blah. And then if it, that can just start to spiral in some cases into being really, really restrictive or really inflexible and that's in terms of disordered eating where we are talking more kind of the orthorexia side of things so that obsession with healthy eating um, which isn't yet kind of a an official eating disorder but it's something that i think is very common uh, especially in the age of social media and yeah, and when you talk about orthorexia, actually, that's a really great point. I wonder,
1: we had this, I guess, a few years ago, this massive explosion of the uh, clean eating, didn't we? Kind of everywhere, everything was clean eating. And and do you think that's kind of played into this perfectionism and avoidance of anything that isn't totally, you know, green or organic or completely nutritious?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, because even that language, I mean, that's so toxic talking about food as being clean, because then it's insinuating that other food is unclean or bad. And it's its totally that black and white thing. And it was quite clean eating, I found a really insidious one, because on the face of it, it didn't seem that bad. It was like, oh, I'm just I'm just eating well. Um, but actually, when you looked at clean eating, it was restrictive, it was talking about avoiding gluten for no reason, you know, avoiding dairy and a lot of focus on organic food and, you know, a lot of things that just aren't necessary for a healthy diet. Um, and then again, yeah, that kind of that black and white restriction. And for some people it kind of became, you know, I'm eating clean this day. And then again, this is a cheat day. And this is, you know, words that are you know around still, and they're still very common for people to talk about eating clean and clean eating. Um, even though thankfully the fad itself is kind of over. Yeah, definitely. And I've hundred percent
1: used those terms in, in the past in a, what i consider to be a balanced way i suppose but i i definitely got sucked up in having those clean eating books or it's, it's cheat day so we're gonna have a takeaway like i've definitely used that terminology without even thinking about how that could be damaging to the people around me um mm-hmm. or our, our own image and i think yeah, it's great that we're starting to raise awareness and move away from these terms of good food and bad food and recognize that all food is nutritious in some way but that and the kind of components of that could vary
0: Absolutely. And that's where, like, if we look at some of the main principles of eating well, this is something I talk about in my book, is that that variety is so key. And when we eat a variety of foods, we get lots of different nutrients, but it also means that we have that flexibility. So if not nothing's off limits, again, unless you decide, you know, for ethical reasons or if you have a certain allergy, you know, there are definitely caveats to it. But for the most part, if nothing's off limits to you and you then approach it from a place of self-care and it's more okay how am I going to feel good what's going to nourish my body but what's also just going to taste good and what am I going to enjoy because that's still an important part. Definitely food can be such an amazing part of life can't it and that's I guess where it's so
1: sad and damaging when that becomes a, a compulsive or a restrictive or a really negative emotion that's associated with foods rather than those kind of positive and enjoyments.
0: Absolutely. And that's why I really do enjoy working with people when they start to get that food freedom back. And even if it's just, you know, a tiny baby step in the right direction, that the fact that people can actually, you know, enjoy a meal with their family or their friends again, or, you know, just enjoy the taste of a food that they haven't eaten in a long time. um, Yeah, I really enjoy that. That must be such a rewarding moment. And actually, (laughs) for anyone who's listening, who perhaps
1: is going through an eating disorder journey to hear that that is, that is hopefully their future reality must sometimes must feel like a mile away but actually is really possible with the support and help and, and guidance that they need
0: that's it and it's looking at the kind of the bigger picture of you know where have you come from and you know those baby steps as well because it can seem so overwhelming if somebody's in if somebody's very unwell and they're in a very restrictive place but if you can gradually start to, you know, work through some reintroductions and, you know, get help with your nutrition plan, um, it can just make such a big difference.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder, we've kind of talked about um, the, the food element of disordered eating and relationships with food. But I wonder mm-hmm. whether physical activity and exercise, where does that kind of fit in?
0: Yeah, so it really depends on the individual and the type of eating disorder or disordered eating that they're going through. Um, if somebody has a severe eating disorder, and for example, if they're admitted into hospital, um, then they may be on bed rest, so exercise may be off the table altogether. Um, similarly, if somebody is recovering but they're at home, but they're getting you know they're seeing a dietitian and a psychologist and keeping in touch with their doctor, um, it may be that they still need to limit their activity so it depends how they're doing in terms of um you know how are their blood results and if it's uh, for women you know have they got their period back regularly and how's their energy levels and how are they doing with their nutrition plan and that kind of thing before they can start to increase their activity levels again and for other people focusing on so say i guess if we're talking about the more so not a clinically disorder but if somebody has more of a disordered relationship with food and possibly that might be impacting exercise as well so if exercise has become kind of an obsessive thing or a punishment or something that you avoid because you hate because you really force yourself to do you know really strenuous exercise that you just don't enjoy um, then coming at that from a place of self-care as well can be really helpful so focusing on gentle movement um, and intuitive movement so movement that you enjoy basically and um, so for some people, it's like starting off with gentle yoga or some walks and maybe it's walk with your partner or your friends and um, just something that you enjoy. Really, that's that's the key part of it. And generally trying to just think, OK, well, what would actually feel good today rather than what do I feel like I should do? So rather than, OK, because if you've been in a cycle of I need to do this to burn calories or to get a beach bod or, you know, any of these, you know, more harmful approaches, then It can be a totally different mindset just to think, okay, how does my body feel today? Do I need rest? Maybe I don't need any exercise today. Or would some gentle yoga or a walk feel good? And then, you know, maybe start to build it up a little bit to find other activities that are maybe a little bit more active. But again, it will depend on the stage of recovery. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
1: I love that you mentioned that That actually what do what's going to feel good today rather than what's my mind telling me that I've got to do because that's that's definitely for some people going to be a really overwhelming emotion so so changing the mindset on that's really important and mm-hmm. that beach bod oh my goodness what a what an awful media campaign this has been for years and years and years hasn't it and I guess yes. that falls in line with that getting your post baby body back which is a midwife makes me mm-hmm. so furious and these are the kind of things that have just caused so much damage to so many people haven't they
0: Absolutely and yeah that's a really good point to mention that And there's so much pressure on new mothers as it is and to have you know all these negative media images then about like you know here's this person's body you know soon after giving birth and everything and it's just it's it's so toxic I mean it's amazing what our bodies can do and how our bodies can change and um, just this you know, promoting this image that we're supposed to stay and like look like a teenager or an unrealistic model forever—it's it's just really toxic.
1: It really is, isn't it? And I think for for anyone who's experiencing, I guess maybe some negative comparison or um, mm-hmm. things on social media, it's just so important that they unfollow those people and actually fill yes. their feed with with positive and realistic and healthy expectations rather than this these extreme kind of takes on on various fads yes. and. An
0: image. That's it, or even move away from people altogether and just follow like puppies and bunnies and just yeah. things that make you happy. Yeah, I love it, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> so when we, I suppose, look at um,
1: the the range of um, eating disorders, do you find mm. that generally people are able to recognise a problem themselves, or does it tend to come from
0: maybe people around them? What's your experience? Um, it's been a bit of both of my experience because I've I've been thinking mainly of with some of the younger people I've worked with, some more kind of adolescent group. Um, a lot of the time it has been from the parents or sometimes from um, like a sports coach or something like that. Um, but even with some of the adults I've worked with, yeah, it has been like partners and things have noticed, but a lot of the time the person themselves does have some sort of inkling um it's just they may not always be at the stage of being fully ready to ask for help and to acknowledge it um so yeah it's it's been a bit of a mix of both really in my experience and i suppose that's where kind of raising the awareness around disordered eating
1: and sort of breaking down that taboo is really important isn't it so that actually people yeah. can start these conversations and then actually access the help that they really
0: really need Yeah, absolutely. And that's where the BEAT website that you mentioned is so helpful. And there's loads of great resources on there. And there's like specific leaflets about if you suspect somebody close to you has an eating disorder, you know, how do you approach that? What do you do? And even some of the kind of the early signs and symptoms as well. Um, So there's there's two different ones um, that are fairly easy to remember. So you have lips, flips, hips, kips, nips and skips. So that's kind of one approach. And what it means is um, it's just kind of to, to remind you of some of the key aspects of disordered eating. So lips is that person being obsessive around what they're putting through their mouth. So are they obsessing about food? Flips is behavior changing. So it's behavior flipping back and forth. Hips, a distortion around body image. Kips, somebody often being tired or struggling with concentration. Nips is nipping to the toilet after meals. So possibly purging. And then skips is somebody starting to exercise regularly and um, so that's one image that they have up on the beat website um which can be helpful in terms of signposting and then another one is called the scoff questionnaire and it's s-c-o-f-f and it stands for sick control one fat and food and what it means is do you ever make yourself sick because you feel uncomfortably full do you ever worry that you've lost control over how much you eat Have you recently lost more than one stone in a three-month period? Do you believe yourself to be fat when other people say you're too thin? And would you say that food dominates your life? So that's another kind of brief overview in terms of some of the signs and symptoms if you suspect that somebody close to you uh, may have issues with food or if you yourself feel like there may be an issue there. I mean, really, the one key question I would always bring it back to is, do you think that food dominates your life in an unhealthy way? And if the answer is yes, maybe unsure, um, then I would always encourage somebody to seek support or at least to speak to a friend or a loved one. Yeah, that's a really great advice.
1: And those tools, I suppose, are things that we can almost do just to screen ourselves now and again, maybe mm-hmm. when life's getting a bit chaotic and just reassess where we're at and actually what do we need to be focusing on? Because I think yeah. the the one we spoke about, about um, do you think you're fat when other people don't, I think is probably massively common when you think about the general population and all of the the ad hoc diets that people might go on. And again, alluding to those um, restriction in food groups and actually looking at our bodies in a positive light, we seem to be absolutely terrible at, don't we? Like yeah. we're just terrible. And sometimes I think we need to just stand in the mirror and say, do you know what, actually my body's great because it's free of disease. It allows me to do whatever it is that makes you feel good, be that that running or, or your job or or having... Yeah you know, grown children or, or birth children and looking at those positive things rather than, oh, I've got some cellulite on my thighs, like 99.9% of other women in, in, in the world. And I think that's where social media has really got to start taking responsibility in being real and empowering women rather than making them feel so kind of critical and, and negative about their own bodies
0: yeah a hundred percent um and because you know it may not come naturally to everyone as you're saying to think about our body in such a positive way it's almost like kind of like a muscle that you need to exercise but it's exercising that kind of self-control and body acceptance or even body positivity if you can get to that stage um, and it can be as you're saying literally looking in the mirror and just thinking you know why are you grateful for each part of your body and um, there's some nice like little meditations and things you can do about it and um, just starting to reframe it really when you do when that negative voice pops up it's not to you know push it away or ignore it but it's to you know how would you respond to a friend that was saying that about themselves and try and be as kind and compassionate to yourself that's a great tip isn't it because I'm
1: sure the things mm-hmm. that people say to themselves they would never even dream of considering that own saying to somebody else and and we yeah. need to give ourselves that self-love as well for sure <laughs> Now, I just wonder whether the current climate and COVID-19 and lockdown and the kind of widespread anxiety that I think most people are experiencing anyway, has that kind of caused, I don't know, a peak or more issues with disordered eating?
0: Yeah, there have been a few studies actually investigating this. Um, There was one that came out of Australia about a month or two ago, Um, and it did It kind of reflected what some of my clients were telling me um, around some of the, the difficulties that are arising during lockdown. Um, and this is some people who already had disordered eating or an eating disorder. And then also, um, people who were on the less extreme end of the spectrum to start with. So I think it's, it's affected people in lots of different ways. Um, some of it being, you know, there's been quite a heavy emphasis on exercise and workout at home and, um, you know, that hasn't been a normal thing for a lot of people to do and it's become a lot more common Um, and not to say that that's bad or anything but for somebody who has an eating disorder and may be prone to over exercise if their whole house is suddenly you know doing lots of exercise very close to them or in the house it can just make you feel kind of guilty or feel that you should be doing that as well and when in a lot of cases you know they should be avoiding that type of exercise and same with food you know there's been a lot of emphasis on I guess healthy eating and home cooking and you know but a lot of it has been really positive in terms of you know making sourdough and baking and you know just enjoying getting in touch with food again so there has been some positives some negatives Um, and for some people it's it's just increased anxiety in general and that increase in anxiety can then play out in terms of the eating disorder in terms of trying to regain control by restricting food intake or by the eating disorder trying to regain a bit more control so so yeah there's there's lots of ways that it, it has negatively impacted people's relationship with food and in some cases the recovery journey um, but also you know it has been a time of you know learning and for some people it has actually just given them a little bit more time to kind of you know reflect and relax and it has been helpful for some people so i've seen kind of both ends of the spectrum
1: yeah that's really interesting I suppose when you feel like your everything outside of your your body is is losing control because obviously we've got no control about what's going on in the world and no sort of sort of end point I wonder whether maybe people are therefore focusing on that exercise and food to kind mm. of replace the control that they might have had in their their normal day and I suppose it's raised some new challenges for people for sure mm-hmm. yeah so for people um Maeve who have detected that perhaps them or somebody that's one of their loved ones may have some disordered eating with food what do they do in terms of accessing help i know we spoke about beat which is obviously an amazing charity but are, yeah. what kind of avenues are there in into accessing treatment and support
0: so the first protocol call is really speak to your gp speak to your doctor uh, because the support services available do differ depending on different areas um, and it's always just good to get that medical support and medical checkup because if somebody has an eating disorder, it's that kind of three-prong approach of medical support from a doctor, nutrition support from a dietitian, and psychological support. You know, they're the three things that really help to improve and speed up recovery. Um, so, so that first step is, you know, speaking to your doctor about that, seeing what's available. Um, you know, you'll most likely get a blood test taken to check You know some of those those important factors um and then and then it will depend so unfortunately some of the waiting lists for actual eating disorder treatment um in the nhs can be quite long but it will of course depend on the area that you're in um but there's lots of you know really great specialist teams um in terms of community mental health teams and eating disorder teams and um, specific to young people and to adults um There's also then, you know, support available down the private route. Uh, So, you know, I work with some clients privately online, and there's other dietitians and psychologists and therapists who also work privately. Um, And there's some groups as well. So it, again, depends on the the type um, of the disorder or disordered eating and the overall condition. Um, but you know, sometimes there are kind of like CBT groups and um, general support groups and on the BEAT website, you know, they have some support services on there. Um, so yeah, so really the starting point, I usually encourage people to go to the doctor and to have a look on the BEAT website. Amazing. And I suppose sparking
1: up those conversations is, is yeah. like, like lots of mental health issues, sometimes one of the most challenging hurdles, isn't it? And yes, yeah, like and, and one of the bravest things actually is recognizing that and then accessing help. Mm-hmm. And so I would encourage, I suppose, for anyone who is approaching these conversations and having difficulty vocalizing it is that it's absolutely fine to write your feelings down and present that to the GP or take someone with you as a kind of advocate and are they things that you see kind of happening in practice?
0: Yeah, that can be a really helpful thing to do. Um, I guess when I'm working with somebody, they've often already been through that step Um but yeah, it could definitely be really helpful. And the other thing is, I mean, people can be really nervous to talk to those close to them. And um, sometimes it's easier to speak to, you know, almost like a, a random health professional rather than somebody who knows you really well. And sometimes it's the opposite way. Sometimes people are more comfortable speaking to those that are close to them and feel strange, kind of speaking to kind of an outsider about this. And um, so, whatever you find you know the easiest as a starting point it's just really is important to have that conversation so whether it's friends and family whether it's health professional ideally both and if you are really nervous about those first conversations you don't always have to you know go into loads of detail or anything it doesn't need to be this massive conversation it can just be um you know i'm struggling with my food my body image you know i'm working on it i'm getting support. Um, you know just just even setting the scene in that way and just you know taking it from there because it, it'll start to take the power out of the eating disorder the more you can speak about it and get support and kind of bring it out into the light because if it's left kind of by itself it gives it more space to thrive and to take over and to take more control and um, so it is just really important to have those conversations yeah
1: brilliant that's really great advice and i guess in terms of treatment for um eating disorders mm-hmm. it's going to vary depending on severity and type but would you mind just kind of summarizing some of the i guess most common options and kind of routes that people might be directed along
0: yeah so as i said it should really be the, the psychological support the nutrition support and the medical support um and then, as I said, it might be support from a community team that would have all of those um aspects to support you, or for some people, especially if they go down the private route, then you might find your own therapist, your own dietitian. Um, and the in terms of the, the therapy itself, so um obviously, you know, I can't really speak about the, the psychological side of things in too much detail, um, but some of the approaches that you know I've, I've heard about or read about and my clients have told me about um, have been around use of CBT, around acceptance therapy, um, around the self-guided help as well, self-guided therapy, so more where somebody is either in a group or an individual setting kind of given kind of reflections and exercises to do and um, the, the health professional you know just kind of guides the person through that, but it's really, it's a lot of self-directed work. Um, and then there is, there is a type of um, CBT-specific to eating disorders as well. Um, so they'd be some of the, those kind of approaches. From the nutrition side of things, um, it, it really does depend on the situation. So if somebody is a very restrictive eating disorder or if it's anorexia, then it's often, you know, you'll have a nutrition plan to start with. Somebody has to build up their nutrition intake gradually, um and then it's often working through the kind of food fears so gradually reintroducing foods as well expanding the dietary intake um for some people if it's say more kind of binge eating disorder then it's it's really important to establish regular eating so eating every two to three hours you know having your three meals your three snacks um And you know, focusing on balancing the meals, so they're also satisfying and will keep you going and are nutritious, of course um and also, yeah, it's kind of similar in terms of working through food fears um and also it's there's a lot of debunking and and putting into perspective nutrition and the fads and things because if somebody is struggling with their food and their relationship with food and they, they have all these kind of misconceptions or all these ideas in their head, a lot of the time it's about like debunking that and um, kind of reassuring around food.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I guess that's really useful for people to understand that it is that multi-pronged approach because you've got the Mm -hmm. psychological element, the physical element, and then obviously that, that recovery in terms of looking at nutrition and food and and the way forward for everybody. and. The, the debunking of myths to anyone who is still got any illusions over kind of food restriction or, or kind of myths around food I would absolutely recommend heading over to Meve's page which will be linked in the bio because you do debunk them just so brilliantly. Oh thank <laughs> and, you. <laughs> and hopefully people will, will start to understand that actually all food is food and that we shouldn't be restricting any kind of food groups and we need to be working through that if that's kind of a headspace i suppose that that people might be in yes definitely definitely, definitely. amazing and so for i suppose for people who maybe have not got a a specified eating disorder but have got this general uh, maybe slightly Unhelpful relationship with food or with their body image. Would you be able to give us a few little top tips for for managing that and trying to to work through that and make food more of a positive thing for them?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing is really, as we were saying, taking food off that pedestal. So realizing that there's no such thing as good and bad foods. It's all about your overall diet, your overall balance, and all foods can play a role in that and you know getting back to that place of enjoying food so for some people we'd be doing like mindful eating exercises with food to really tap into you know what's it tastes like and what foods do you really like give you a lot of experimenting um if someone wants to go down the intuitive eating approach route um that can be a really good one and not for somebody who's you know suffering from a severe eating disorder um but For somebody who is on the less extreme end and who wants to maybe improve their relationship with food, Um, it can be really nice because, you know, there are parts of it where you focus on positive body image and that intuitive movement that we mentioned. Nutrition does come into it, but it's a last step. It's gentle nutrition where you are considering, you know, what feels good, what tastes good, but also you know, how do I want to feel and what would actually, you know, make me feel good and make sure my bowels are regular and all these other things that food has an impact on. So it's it's just much bigger picture, but it's really focusing on those internal signals of hunger, of fullness, um, of eating mindfully, of enjoying food and not being scared of that kind of satisfaction factor, because that's something that a lot of us have that we're almost scared to feel full or to enjoy our food. You know, it's almost like, society sort of says that you always have to be on a diet or you always have to be a little bit hungry. Um and it's, you know, it's just throwing away those unhelpful rules and ditching all of that diet culture um, and just getting to kind of a freer and happier place with food. But it's quite hard to explain it so briefly because it's such a, a long process. Um, and it's something that it's really, it's a self-discovery journey and it's, it's very individual, but you know, it's a really worthwhile thing to do.
1: Yeah, definitely. I suppose there's no, no quick fix in the same way that there is no quick fix in terms of all the, the ridiculous fad diets that we see alluded everywhere. (laughs) true true (laughs) and then um just to to finish us off i wonder whether you could share us another three top tips but for people who perhaps want to speak to someone who they think may be suffering from maybe a more severe version of an eating disorder
0: Mm -hmm. or supporting someone who has been diagnosed yeah really good question so I think it really does come back to what we were saying. We were kind of talking about it in terms of like a household, but it may not be a household. It may be a friend, but you know, not using those unhelpful, that unhelpful language around weight, shape, food, diets, those kinds of things to start with, um, providing lots of reassurance. So, you know, just being there for that person is is really the most important thing and I guess if it's in a more kind of a family context as well, just making sure that, you know, just taking blame out of the equation. So, you know, you're not blaming yourself, you're not blaming the person and, you know, they aren't blaming anyone because as we said earlier, it's so complex, all the reasons that can lead to an eating disorder developing. It's not one person's fault at all. Um, and yeah, in terms of kind of practical advice, I would really encourage people to check out the leaflet from BEAT on the BEAT website. Um And I forget what it's called exactly, but I think it's like supporting a loved one with an eating disorder or how do I speak about an eating disorder or something like that. Um, And it just goes through a lot more. It even gives like little ideas of how to phrase things. Um, It's really helpful that's really helpful because i think people are
1: probably sometimes worried about saying anything in fear of saying the wrong thing and then that can obviously also cause issues so having some phrases that you can you can utilize is is really really helpful in supporting that
0: yeah and i mean that is something i mean for health professionals as well i feel in this area sometimes um we can be scared to sort of say the wrong thing but it's just much more important to just be there for that person to you know to be honest to be supportive um and to kind of you know to respect their strength that they have as well because um you know we they're they're not going to be this you know really delicate person we're not going to break them by saying anything it's just i know i know i did say you know be careful of what we're saying but it's much more important to just actually be there and to be able to have the conversation um and you know people understand that we're all human we're not perfect but you know we just do our best and just be there for the person really definitely and life would be boring if we were perfect wouldn't it oh yeah no such thing as
1: perfect no no definitely not so I really hope that today's episode has helped to debunk some of the myths around food to help raise some awareness about disordered eating and to really help to support people on a journey to hopefully having a more positive attitude towards their bodies and towards the food that they're consuming and I'm so grateful Mae, that you came on to share your knowledge and your top tips and i'd really recommend heading over to the beat website and also to me's instagram page which will be um linked in the bio for all of her debunking and amazing nutrition information thank you so much for having me on it was lovely speaking to you thank you so much for listening to this week's episode i really hope that you enjoyed it if you found it helpful then please hit subscribe and leave a review it really does make a huge difference to the number of women we can reach out to and empower. For daily free information, inspiration or details on our bespoke antenatal education, head over to my Instagram page at midwife underscore pip. Thank you and see you next time.